Thank you, Micah and Sanctuary. What an amazing job leading us in the very throne room of God. I'm really proud of Micah. Uh, Micah and I are cousins, and Micah's sister Anna also sings uh, with Sanctuary, and uh, so I always enjoy having an opportunity uh, to, to see them. Also, I don't know if you knew, uh, but the first couple of songs that we sang were actually written uh, by Randy Gill. Randy and his wife, Lawana, are here. We're glad to have them as well. And um, I was talking to Randy last night, and I said, you know, I, it, to me, it just got to give you a lot of satisfaction when you um, pray and think, and, and God puts a song on your heart, uh, and then you write it, and then it's used congregationally with churches. That's just got to be a beautiful thing. And so, Randy, we appreciate very much uh, your work with Sanctuary and Lipscomb, uh, and also your, your work with the broader church, writing music and, and all of that. You're, you're a blessing to us, so thank you. Thank you so much. I want to, before I get into the sermon, I want to tell you about something that's going to happen about a year from now. One year from now, um, I, I'm going to be involved in a Holy Land trip, uh, and we're inviting some folks from this congregation to go along. Uh, a number of people have already expressed an interest, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that on May 22nd. It's an information meeting at 2 o'clock. Uh, we'll have some people on hand who will be able, be able to answer a lot of questions. You know, I see this more than just a trip. I see this as an opportunity um, to walk where Jesus walked, and it will be a real spiritual experience. So if you have an interest, uh, meet with us uh, May 22nd here at the church uh, at 2 in the afternoon. Now, speaking of trips, uh, I want to tell you about a person who took a very fascinating trip. I want to tell you about Erwin Cruz. Erwin Cruz uh, was a man who lived in Germany. He never really traveled a lot. Uh, he worked in a brewery. He was about 49 years old, um, and he always had the dream to traveling to America, and especially he wanted to go to San Francisco. And, and so he dreamed of doing this, and he saved his money and, and one day he had the funds to do it, and so he decided he was going to take this trip. And so he boarded a plane in Frankfurt, and he took off, and they traveled, and they had a layover just to refuel in Bangor, Maine. And, and so as, as they landed in Bangor, Maine, there was a, 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 a woman on board the, the plane, a, a flight attendant, and this was her stop. She was getting off there. And so right before she gets off, she leans over to Irwin and she says to him, have a nice time in San Francisco. She knew all about his trip. But that phrase would change Cruz. For you see, he was kind of, had slept that evening in that all-night flight probably had one too many to drink on the way over and so when she said have a nice trip in San Francisco he awakens and thinks we must be in San Francisco so he immediately gets off the plane gets in a cab says take me to the city and the cab driver took him into Bangor Maine took him right to a hotel first thing he does is try to find a tavern to quench his thirst so for three days Irwin Krutz is walking around Bangor, Maine, thinking that he's in San Francisco, California. He's never been to the United States. He doesn't know anything about California. He's walking around. And his, it's confirmed that he must be in San Francisco because he, he comes across two Chinese restaurants. He thinks, I must be in Chinatown. And so he's walking around, looking around. You know, he, at one point it dawns on me, things don't seem quite right. So he thinks, well, I must be in 
uh, a suburb of the Bay Area. And so he, he flags down a, uh, a cab and he says, take me to San Francisco. The cab driver must have thought he was crazy. So he took him into town more and he found this tavern and he's talking to some people there. And of course, he only speaks broken English. He can't really communicate very well. Some of the people can hear that it's, it's German. And so a woman who happened to be in the establishment, she knows somebody who's German. She knows this person by the name of Gertrude Romine. And so she invites Gertrude to meet, um, meet Mr. Cruz. And he finds out at this point, no, he's not in San Francisco. He's in Bangor, Maine. Well, the local newspaper finds out about it. They write a big story about this lost tourist. And it's picked up nationally. This happened a number of years ago. True story. It's picked up nationally. And so the San Francisco examiner hears about it. And they decide, we want to bring Mr. Cruz to finish his trip. They send money so that he can fly back, fly to San Francisco and finish his, his trip. And as he gets off the plane in San Francisco, the mayor's there. They, they treat him, you know, just wonderfully. The mayor's there with a sign, with a proclamation that says, yes, San Francisco does exist. He spent a few days in San Francisco kind of enjoying the sights and sounds. It's amazing. He has a great sense of humor. And when he comes back home, he gets on the plane, he's headed back to Frankfurt. He has a sign he holds up that says, please let me off in Frankfurt. I'm wondering, have you ever had an experience like that? Maybe not quite like that, but more than likely one of you or some of you in this room, you've had an experience where you're driving down the road and you miss the exit and you wind up someplace that you hadn't intended going, or, or maybe you took a wrong turn, or maybe you got lost and suddenly you lost your way. Now that silly story has a really sobering application when you think about it. You see, there are people, many people in our world, who live their entire lives like Irwin Cruz. They think they're headed in one direction. They think they're going the right way, when in fact, they're not. The Proverbs writer says this in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. He says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. You see, you might think you're going the right way, but in the end, it leads to a dead end, or maybe even death. And so, the truth of the matter is, every one of us in this room, we're on a trip called life, and the amazing thing is, we only get to take this trip one time. And so the words we're going to read from Jesus are very important today. Because Jesus, in this sixth I Am statement, and we're in a message series, we're looking at all seven I Am statements found in the Gospel of John. This morning, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in order to understand Jesus' words, I want us to point, put these words in a little bit of context. Jesus, when he says these words, is with his disciples. It's not long before he goes to the cross. And so he's in this, this area we call the upper room. And a lot of things transpire there that are impactful. At one moment, they're sitting around, sort of oriental style, close to the ground. Feet are next to people's heads. And so Jesus gets up from this Passover meal. 
And he takes off his outer garment and wraps a servant's towel around him and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. He takes the position of a servant. And he said some things that were difficult for the disciples to hear. He, he looks around and says, one of you is going to betray me. We know that's Judas. And at one point, Peter makes this grandiose statement. He's not going to deny the Lord. Other people might deny you, Lord, not me. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then Jesus says some things that really, it really discouraged the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going away. Now, three times in his ministry, Jesus has said, I'm going to a cross, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to a cross, I'm dying, I'm going to be raised on the third day. He said that three times, but they still don't get it. And so Jesus says, I'm going away. And the disciples, they're worried, and they're nervous, and they're confused, and they're very discouraged. And Jesus says some words to them that are very encouraging. Maybe you've come into the room today, and you find yourself discouraged. For one reason or another, you're, you're in a difficult spot. Jesus' words in John 14, these very familiar words, can encourage us. So Jesus begins by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, he said this because, you see, their hearts were troubled. They were discouraged. And then he follows that up with this statement. He says, you believe in God. That's great. I'm glad you believe in God. They did believe in God. But he says, believe also in me. And belief here is, is more than just blithely saying, yes, I, I acknowledge you, Lord. It's, it's active trust. Put your trust in me. You see, the antidote to, to fear and worry and anxiety is, is active trust in God. He says, you believe in me, and then notice what else he says. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now, a lot of us gr grew up in the King James Version of the Bible, and you know how it translates this verse. It says, in my father's house are many mansions, and I certainly think heaven is going to be a glorious place, but that's not a very good translation of this idea. The idea is that in my, in my house, in my father's house, there are a lot of rooms, there are a lot of dwelling places. And I think as we read this passage of Scripture, we, we can see some, some theology around uh, weddings. Now, you know, in the ancient world, a wedding didn't happen just on a day like it does today. There was a couple of steps. There was the betrothal period, and when a when a man asked a woman to marry him, there was this betrothal period. And it's much more serious than our engagement period. It would last a year. And during that betrothal period, often, often he would go to his father's, leave his bride-to-be and go to his father's house and, and build on a room on the father's house or maybe even on the father's land, build a house. And we'd get everything just right, everything prepared. And then he would come back and get his bride. And they would have this week-long celebration. They would get married and then they would go to live at the father's house. I hear that in this passage of scripture. Jesus is the bridegroom. We, his church, are the bride. And he's going to prepare a place for us. Isn't that beautiful and warm and tender language? But there's some questions. Notice the next phrase in the passage. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. There's a lot of reasons I want to be with the Lord in eternity. But friends, I've highlighted those two words that are so important. In eternity, we'll be with Jesus. But they raise all kinds of questions about this. And so, so notice Thomas, he asks this question. Next slide. 
you know the place where I'm going, Jesus says. And then Thomas responds to this in this way. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And in response to Thomas's question, Jesus answers the question. And so Jesus will say in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way. And if you're looking in your Bible, I want you to notice the article. But Jesus doesn't say, I am a way, I'm a possible way, I'm one way. Jesus says, I am the way. And in case we don't get it, he follows that up with the next phrase where he says, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. But the problem is, way too many people want to live life on their terms Rather, they're on God's terms. You remember the old song that Frank Sinatra used to croon. He would sing that song, I did it my way. And the problem is, all too often, that's kind of the mission statement for our life. We want to live life our way. But the idea of living life our way instead of God's way really is, is a very old idea because we read about that as long ago as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve and then Adam were tempted by the evil one to live life according to their way instead of God's way. And because of their choice, they began to experience things and know things they'd never experienced before. Suddenly, Adam and Eve, instead of being in the Father's house, now Adam and Eve feel this distance, this estrangement from God. They have this sense of aloneness. They have this sense of fear, fear and shame and dread. But we serve a gracious God. And the rest of the story, from Genesis 3 onward, is the story of a God who's in pursuit of, of his rebellious and wayward children. And I have this image in my mind. He, here's Adam and Eve. Suddenly they're ashamed. They, they understand sin. And suddenly they're, trying to, they're hiding from God and they're trying to cover themselves. And so they, they find some leaves and they stitch together these leaves for some coverings and God is looking down at them. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, it says that God, it's an act of grace, God clothes them in animal skin. There's already a hint at what will come in the rest of the Bible as blood is shed. And now they're covered by our Lord. Today we're still living in this reality of our way. We're a part of a world where, where people want to live life their way instead of God's way. And as a result, we're suffering the consequences. But I've got good news for you this morning. The good news is there is a way back to the Father's house. And the way back is not through our own goodness our own morality, our own good deeds or good works. Every one of us in this room are, are fallen and broken. We've, we've fallen short of the glory of God. The way back to the Father's house is through Jesus. Jesus declares, I am the way. The best way I know to communicate it is, is, is with, with this. You see, he, here's us. This is you and this is me. 
And there's a distance, there's a chasm, there's a separation between us and God. And we can't get back to God. And so the good news of the gospel is that God has come to us in Jesus. That Jesus is the bridge. That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way back to the Father. We can't come to him. And so the chasm was bridged through a Roman cross. And this morning, if you'll turn away from that old way of life, if you'll turn away from that life that says, I want to do it my way, if you'll turn to God, and if you'll be baptized in his name, that will connect you to the cross and your sins will be forgiven. And friends, you can have, you can have life, real life, that we'll talk about in a moment. I love that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 because it, because it just summarizes it all so beautifully. Where Paul says, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. It's an incredible exchange. It's an amazing deal. We give Jesus our sin. Jesus took our place on the cross. He took our sin. And what does he give us? He gives us his own righteousness. As Paul will describe in other places, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is the way. But I want you to see something else. Jesus also says, I am the truth. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is also the truth about God. Again, notice the article. <clears throat> Jesus is the truth. Jesus is not a truth or one truth. Jesus' claim is more than that. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 18, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. And quite honestly, Pilate really doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and there's all kinds of questions that are asked. And Pilate asks this question. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus begins to describe his kingdom to Pilate. Jesus says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And after he's plied with more questions, Jesus says this, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Friends, you're bombarded with constant messages. And sometimes you, you might throw up your hands and don't even know what to believe. Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate hears all this. And then Pilate asks what I think is a universal question. Pilate asks this. He says simply, what is truth? And maybe that's what you're asking today. Maybe you're wondering, can I know the truth? What is truth? Maybe you don't understand that you can know the truth. Over the last few years, the Oxford Dictionary every year selects what it calls the word of the year. And that's a word that, um, that we begin using and maybe we didn't use it before and it kind of slips into the English language. It becomes very common. We all know it. We all hear it a lot. Uh, for instance, uh, the word of the year in 2013, several years ago, was the word selfie. Now, a lot, some of you in this room can't remember a time when you didn't use the word selfie. I am old enough to remember a time when we didn't talk about selfies. I, I'm old enough to remember a time 
way back when, when, when we took a picture of each other, we called them pictures. But these days, we call them selfies. That was, a, that was the word in 2013. In 2021, the word of the year was vax. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Vax. Talk about vaccines. Have you been vaxed? Did you get the vax? You know, that, that word slipped into our vocabulary. But in, in the year 2016, it's a hyphenated word. The word that came into our language in 2016, you can think of all the things that were going on about 2016, it's the word post-truth. Post-truth. And what that phrase means is objective facts are not nearly as important as how you feel. Objective facts are not as significant as your emotions. And you might say, well, that's where we live right now. We live in an age of spin and hype and conjecture and people wonder, can we know what's even true anymore? And yet, quite honestly, this post-truth age isn't really all that new. Way back in the Old Testament, the last verse in the book of Judges, it says this, we'll put it on the screen. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone had their own truth. It was my truth. But the good news is, today we have a king, and his name is Jesus. And here is, here's Pilate. He, he, put, he raises his hands, he says, what is truth? And the truth was standing right in front of him, and he didn't know it. Now, my question today is, do you know the truth? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really, my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We especially like the latter half of that verse. We want to talk about how the truth will set us free. Maybe you've heard of that. But we've got to understand the first part of the verse before we understand the last part of the verse. Jesus says, let me tell you what a disciple is. If you want to know what a disciple is, it's someone who holds to my teaching. And he said, if we hold to the teachings of Jesus, then he says, you're going to know something. You're going to know the truth. And then you're going to be able to walk in freedom. Not freedom that says, well, I can just live any way I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. It really doesn't matter. I am free. Not that. I can live in this freedom where I'm, I, I'm free from bondage, free from guilt, free from dead-end ways of living, free from meaninglessness. We're free to passionately pursue God. And it's then, friends, that we're able to walk in true freedom. Oh, there are a lot of people in this world who claim to be free and Jimmy McDowell would say they're absolutely in bondage. And you know those people as well. But the good news, Jesus says, I come I'm offering, I'm going to show you the way. Jesus says, I, I come offering the truth. I am the truth. But notice one other thing that he says. Jesus says, I am the life. And so here's the question I want to ask you today is, how would you like to really live? 
And that's really what people are pursuing. They're pursuing life. They want to really live. And so they think, well, life is in my hands. I want to pursue what I want to do in my way. I'm going to do things like I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the captain of my destiny or, or whatever we will say. But Jesus says, it's not about you. And, and you do know, right, that you begin to really live when it suddenly dawns on you. What's, it's, it's, it's not about me. You could arrange your life that way. And that's a surefire way for you to be sad and to have a, have a hard life. Jesus says, I am the life. The irony is when we deny ourselves and take up the cross, the irony, it, when we lose ourselves, it's then that we truly find and gain real life. Jesus is just ours from dying on a cross. And what is he talking about? He's talking about living Life is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. We're not three verses into John's Gospel, and we find this in verse 3 in John chapter 1 on the screen. We'll put it on the screen right now. It says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus doesn't come just to give us existence. Oh, we have that. And really, Jesus gives us that too, and I'm grateful for it. Every day I wake up and able to take another breath or take another step or enjoy time with my wife or children or whatever else God puts in front of me. I'm, I'm grateful for life. And he gives us bios life. But Jesus says, I've come to give you something even more. I've come to give you a quality of life. I've, I've come to give you meaningful life. He puts it like this. We read this verse in, in another sermon in John chapter 10 and verse 10. I've come that you might have life and notice what kind of life it is. Have it to the full. It's an abundant, overflowing life. Jesus ultimately offers not just life here for a few years, for 60 years or 70 years or maybe even 100 years. No, God comes offering us eternal life. He offers us life right now. A life that is rich and meaningful. Although Jesus is just a few hours from dying, he's only three days from resurrecting. So here's what I believe. One day, barring an early return of Jesus, I, I hate to break it to you, but I want you to know you're going to die. As far as I can tell, it's about 100%. Every one of us in this room, barring an early return of Jesus, will die. Everyone up to this point has died. We're going to die. But if you're in Christ, your spirit goes to be with God. And one day, when God the Father says to the Son, it is time, he's going to come back and will be raised from the dead, and we will have eternal life with the Father in the new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus says, I am I am the way. My question, will you follow the way? I am the truth. Will you embrace the truth? Embrace Jesus? I am the life. Will you make the decision today to say, I want to give my life to him, and it's then that he gives me real life. I don't know about you, 
but I'm choosing the one who didn't stay dead. I don't know about you. I'm choosing the one who on the third day was raised. I don't know about you. I'm choosing the one who was in the garden and Mary went there early in the morning to find Jesus and she didn't find him. And then Jesus came and he said just one word and her eyes were opened. He said, Mary, I don't know about you, but I'm choosing the one who stayed with his disciples for over 40 days. And then they watched with their own eyes as he ascended into heaven. And now he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And one day he's coming back. I don't know about you, but I'm choosing him. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Today, if you want to make that decision, I'll be down front. We'll have elders in the back. If we can help you with any, any matter, we would love to pray with you. Come as we stand and sing.